0: Morning Bethel. Our scripture reading for this morning Romans 8 verses 18 to 25. So Romans 8:18 8, to 25, that's page 944 in the Pew Bible. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. Starting in verse 18 of Romans chapter 8. This is the word of the Lord. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see... We wait for it with patience. Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning, Bethel.
1: It's good to be back with you all. we uh, were in Chicago for the week. Spent Thanksgiving there. Hope that you had some good time reflecting on all the, all the things you have to be thankful for. Um, I'm going to just share one story, something that uh, really hit me, something I'm thankful for so uh, we actually took advantage of the opportunity out there to do a college visit early and as a junior but with sports it may be difficult to you know schedule these things and so she has some interest maybe in going to wheaton and so you know we're right there let's go ahead and schedule the visit so walking down memory lane you know on the campus tour all these places that you know get all these stories beth and i is where we met and then they have you go to chapel. Um, and so went into chapel, and one of the songs we were singing, led by student um, musicians, was really good, uh, was I Believe in God the Father, I Believe in Christ the Son. We had sung it a few weeks earlier, and Hannah was actually up here leading, and Chris, you were leading that morning. Um, and so I started singing this song, and I just lost it started weeping with thanksgiving because I believe those things not because of anything in me but because God saved me there and it just all came flooding back that why why am I singing this right now why is my daughter singing this in my ear she even put her arm around me and she's saying I'm just like you know I don't have any Kleenex you know I'm like ah. Uh, um but it was just so sweet to think about God's kindness um, and mercy to me. I was just a good hypocrite for a long time, and I went into Wheaton under that pretense. And God was merciful even to a hypocrite like me and saved me. So um, I'm thankful, and I hope that if you believe in God the Father and Christ the Son and the Holy Spirit, and you have new life in Christ, that you're also really thankful. Even if everything else is a mess, <laughs> you've got a lot to be thankful for. Um, And if you don't know that Savior, we hope to introduce you to him this morning. All right, so this Sunday marks the beginning of the Advent season, okay? So as many of you probably know, the four Sundays leading up to prior to Christmas form the Sundays of Advent. And some of you may have some family traditions where you do daily readings or some other things that go along with the Advent season. Um, We've done some things as a church over the years um, in this season, sometimes emphasizing it, sometimes not so much. But um, there's no mandate in Scripture to observe Advent. It's optional, I guess you could say, but it also can be very profitable, and it can help keep our focus on Jesus um, all through this season where it can be really easy to lose focus on what really matters. So, the English word, Advent, comes from the Latin word that means coming. So, Advent is all about the coming of Christ. So, while the first coming of Christ in the incarnation is primarily in view, this year, we're really going to spend time thinking about both the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Okay, so in taking the time to focus on the coming of Christ, um, first and second, you can think of joy to the world. Um, you know that Christmas carol. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. That's a good way of talking about what we're doing this season. We're making space intentionally. We're getting in a posture of ready reception and welcome. We can't let the most important person in the universe get crowded out um, anytime, but certainly not at this time, um, this season. So Advent is a time to cultivate appreciation for the first coming and eager anticipation for the second coming. It's a time to wait intentionally wait. Our hope is in the Lord, and so we wait for Him. It's a time to seek the Lord. It's a time to have our hopes realigned and and in the right place. It's a time for preparation and soul-searching, okay? So um, it's a great time to do so, whether, whether the Christmas season is your favorite time of the year, you know, most wonderful time of the year, or maybe it's one of your least favorite times of the year. And, and just for what it's worth, so that we can be sensitive to one another, if it's the most wonderful time for you, just know that that's not the case for everybody in the room, not everybody that you're going to run into, um, you know, throughout this season. For some people, Christmas is a really painful season, so it can be a reminder of a lot of pain and loss, I mean, it's going to be that way for the Ruperts. We can be praying for them can be a reminder of loneliness and the ache that is there. It can also be hard because it's high stress for a variety of reasons. Um, some of those ladies that are centrally focused on the tea that's a big part of, you know, the previous weeks and up, up to this coming Saturday, it might be high stress for that reason. Um, it can be a temptation, obviously, at this season to focus on all the wrong things, getting caught up in the Rampant consumerism, buying more than you need, or coveting what you can't buy. So again, whether it's the most wonderful time of the year or the worst time of the year for you, we all will do well to focus on the one who has come and the one who is coming. And he will orient us through this season, no matter what it's like circumstantially, because all of our life, we need to, I'm not just saying this, this is not just kind of like a cute little homiletical thing, oh, oh, cute little series for the holidays, you know, we live between the Advents. We really do live between the Advents, folks, not just at this season, but all of our life, and it's so utterly important that we get this, and that we learn this, that we live between the first and second comings of Christ, and how to do so. These are the two most important events in human history. And they have everything to do with how we live. Everything to do with how we live. We need to learn to live centered on the first advent, the first coming of Christ. We need to believe in what has been done. We need to celebrate it and know the security, the soul level security that can come from being focused there. We need to learn to live centered on the second advent. We need to believe what is coming and anticipate eagerly what's coming, and it will stabilize us in the present no matter what we're going through. So we, we need, in a sense, like biblical bifocals. You know, the glasses with the little line. I mean, I guess some of them don't even have line anymore, but you look down, and you look up, and you can focus near or far. So the last several chapters of the book of Hebrews really can help us put those biblical bifocals on to help us walk through Advent season and all of life in focus between the first coming and the second coming of Christ as we run the race that's set before us. Okay? So, I mean, everybody actually lives with the past and the future in view, and it affects their present. You know this? Everybody on the planet lives this way. It's just a matter of what that past that governs your present and what that future that governs your present is. Okay, So you could be an atheist like Bertrand Russell, famous philosopher. Listen to how he would describe, if an atheist is honest with him or herself, the past and the future. Um, Such an outline... But even more purposeless, more void of meaning, is the world which science presents for our belief. It's an interesting word to use. That man, that I'm sorry, that man, mankind, is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving... That his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. That no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are just destined to extinction. Extinction in the vast death of the solar system, and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of the universe in ruins. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. So there's one option. You can be an atheist and have random collocation of atoms, no prevision, no prevision of an end, any purpose guiding you, and then just buried under the debris of, you know, again, it's just the turning of impersonal gears, so what's the... How about living in between, in the now, with that as the past in view and the future in view? You think that might affect the present? Well, guess what? Some of your friends believe this. They may not be as honest as... Bertrand Russell, but they need to know that that's actually what they believe, if that's what they believe, you might want to share that with them. Family, co-workers, neighbors, who need to come to terms with that worldview and then see there is a better way, there is a hope. In fact, they don't live in line with this because they they might as well just put the bullet in their head now. We actually believe that love has meaning. (laughs) Why do we believe that? Because atheism isn't imprinted deeply on our hearts. The image of God is imprinted deeply on our hearts, right? So everyone lives between some past that governs their present, some future that governs their present, even atheists. And sometimes these past and future things can be really small. Like if your hope of a happy future, is wrapped up too much in your finances. If things are going well, then you're generally at peace. But if there's extra expenses and needs and something happens, a medical issue or whatever that you didn't anticipate, and then all of a sudden you see you start to get short with people and cranky and anxious and stressed, or maybe as small as this hope horizon could be, you know, the hope of a a comfortable night at home, And things, you know, if they fall in line and you're on the couch with your favorite show by 8.30, you know, all is well, you're happy. But let's say your boss stops by your office at 4.30 and drops a bomb on your desk, or someone calls and asks you something, something of you on your way home, or you come home and you find a plumbing leak, or your house is in chaos and the kids are out of control, what ends up happening? You get anger and bitter because your hope gets blown up. so we all live this way whether with a really short small horizon or the big horizon you know birth and death and everything in between so here's the here's the point here this is so vital that we learn to live between the first and second advent we need the appropriate horizons and really i'll just lay out some of the desires here some of the prayers for this series I'm just praying that the Lord will make us normal Christians. Like normal according to the New Testament, for instance. It's normal in the New Testament to say to live as Christ and to die is gain. It's normal to eagerly wait for our Savior from heaven, our true home. And see, if we really get this, It has such impact in the now, stuff like endurance, that we not give up. I mean, do you need resilience and stability? Do you need to fight against a kind of defeatist or fatalistic mentality that can creep in? This will help. I mean, the Lord needs to put some fight back into some of us to run the race that's set before us. Some of us are just like ready to throw in the towel. How about joy and some buoyancy to that joy? The end of Hebrews is all about this kind of stuff. It's going to help us to live this way between the first and second advent to learn it. The ability to suffer with joy, to even have your joy be out of reach of your circumstances. Anybody interested in that? It's going to adjust our expectations. It's going to keep us from drifting and wandering. And we need to know that when we run this race that's set before us, we don't run it alone. We need to learn to run it together toward our eternal home, helping each other and bringing along as many as possible. So those are just a few purposes for this series that's going to last through Advent and a little bit beyond. So we're going to have five weeks, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, two in chapter 12, and then one in chapter 13 the first of the year, okay? So a little orientation of the book of Hebrews before we dive into chapter 9, because we are diving in, and some of you might not be familiar with the book. Um, again, hard to find a better place than the book of Hebrews for living between the first and second advents. This book is all about the preeminence and the superiority of Jesus. It just says all over the place, he's better, he's better, he's the best, he's the best. <laughs> It exalts him in his first coming, all that he is, all that he came to do. So look back at Hebrews chapter 1. If you're not open to Hebrews yet, um, the book, I mean, I hope that your heart is open. Um, You can find it on page 1001 in the Pew Bible if you're using that. And we'll just touch on a couple key verses here before we dive into chapter 9. Again, exalts the supremacy, the superiority, the preeminence of Jesus. Look at verse 3 of chapter 1. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power, by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Why did he sit down? Because he said, it's finished, and it was finished. Okay, He was done with that work. Here's one way to kind of summarize the book. Jesus, the greater than angels, greater than Abraham, Jesus. He is the mediator, the guarantor of a better covenant by means of a better sacrifice, whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And God provided something better in the new covenant, holding out a better hope established on better promises. And when you are a member of this new covenant people, you have a better possession. You desire a better country and you'll rise to a better life. If you're reading through the book, you'd see all those things laid out. Um, So again, it aims our gaze at the first coming of Christ and all of his glory, all that he did. And then it aims our gaze at the second coming of Christ to live by faith and run the race that's set before us with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the coming one who will soon return and make all things new. In the meantime, it's really easy to get off the path and into the ditch. It's really easy to throw up your hands. It's really easy to slow up and start to drift and wander. So in Hebrews chapter 2, verse one, it says, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. So it's a call to listen up, to believe, to trust and fix our eyes in the right place. We need to run the race of faith with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, all the way home to our heavenly homeland. And again, we so desperately need this perspective. So we're going to look at chapter nine this morning and see the purpose of the first advent, then the purpose of the second advent, and then consider how that ought to shape us as Christian pilgrims who live by faith between the two comings of Christ. So, first point the purpose of the first advent. Um, Context of chapter nine contrast the first covenant, the old covenant under Moses, and the new covenant established by Jesus. So in the first covenant, what did you have? You had the high priest. He went into the holy of holies, which was kind of like the epicenter of God's presence among his people, once a, once a year on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, right? It's the holiest day of the Jewish year, for good reason. And so that priest would offer the blood of the sacrifice for his own sins and for the sins of the people. And as the book of Hebrews makes clear, the the blood of bulls and goats, again, though this was God's setup, ultimately the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. These sacrifices were provisional. They were symbolic. Okay, look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 9. The writer says, According to this arrangement... Old Testament, Old Covenant. Gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared, first Advent, see it? When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once for all, you can underline that, once for all, into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, again, Old Testament Rituals for purification and cleansing and forgiveness of sins temporarily laid out. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, the perfect sacrifice to God, how much more will that blood purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So, Jesus has appeared. You see it there in verse 11. He has come, and so we need to ask the question why? What's the purpose? And we're going to look and find the answer in our text for this morning. Look at verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So why? Why all this sacrifice? Ugh, bloody, it's so gross. Well, if the wages of sin is death, then without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. But we'd all be toast, right? So God sets up this provisional, sacrificial system, Death must be paid to forgive the penalty for those sins. So there's a substitute given, right? And so these sacrificial animals, their blood for yours to cover your sin. But can they really pay the debt? Can they really take it away? No. A better sacrifice is necessary for the forgiveness of our sins. Look at verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites so that the earthly tabernacle, the earthly temple, is just like a copy of the presence of God in heaven, the real place of his presence. So this was like an earthly enactment of what needs to happen in heaven, and only Jesus, by his blood, can give us access and really atone for our sins. It was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves... They have to be purified with better sacrifices than the blood of bulls and goats. So you might ask the question, well, why, why did the heavenly place need to be purified? Like, why did heaven need to be purified? Well, there's nothing wrong with, the, with that space. But the point is, if we are going to dwell with God one day in that sacred space with him, it needs to be made ready. We need to be made ready so that we can approach him, so that we as sinful, unclean people can dwell with him without being consumed by his white hot holiness. Okay? We need to be purified. So it gets clearer as the writer goes on, look at verse 24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So remember that Old Testament high priest that entered into the holy place on behalf of the people. But again, that was just temporary. It really didn't perfect the consciences of the worshipers. It was only temporary and provisional. But Jesus enters into the presence of God with his blood on our behalf as our great high priest. He's mediating for us. And he holds, like it says in chapter 7, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He doesn't die like the priests in the Old Testament. And so listen to verse 25 725 this is great consequently he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them so we can draw near to God i mean apart from Jesus we would be we'd be toast but if we have him as our high priest and his blood atoning for our sins we can have peace and reconciliation with God. And this is so secure because he always lives to make intercession for us. Hebrews goes on to show how superior Jesus is to the Old Testament priesthood and sacrifices. Look at verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. Again, this contrast between Old Covenant New Covenant. As the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. I mean, if he uses his own blood, he, he dies. You would have to get another priest. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared, again, first advent, once for all. There it is again. You can underline it. He's appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So that really sums up the purpose of the first advent. Once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin. So the Old Testament high priest, his job was never done. More sin, more sacrifice. More sin, more sacrifice. It was never truly effective. It was symbolic, provisional, temporary. Jesus' sacrifice, once and done, it is finished. He sits down, and his sacrifice is sufficient for not just a few people, but for people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation past, present, future, to put away sin, really, truly, fully, finally dealing with our sin. Remember in the Old Testament, there was the idea of the scapegoat. Remember this? So there was one goat that was sacrificed as a burnt offering, and then there was the scapegoat, and the priest would lay his hands on the head of this goat, and what he's doing is he's transferring the sin, symbolically, from the people as the mediating leader here, to this animal, and then sending it off into the wilderness. What's the point of that? It's a picture of carrying the sins away. They're just being taken away, born away, so that we don't have to bear them anymore. Well, Jesus is the true scapegoat, right? So as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove, really remove, our transgressions from us. So this is the summary of the purpose of the first advent. He has appeared. He has come. He did it once for all to put away sin. It's really good news. We'll come back to how that we need to really believe that at the end. But let's now consider the second point here, the purpose of the second advent. Jesus is going to come again. He will appear a second time. And we should prepare him room. We should ready ourselves. We should prepare. But again, what's the purpose of the second advent? Look at verses 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once, there it is again, once, to bear the sins of many, that sounds like Isaiah 53, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, second Advent. Why? Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. So we know first what the purpose is not of the second Advent. The purpose of the second Advent is not to deal with sin. There's no more atonement work necessary because... In the first advent, it is finished. He sat down. It's done. Sin has already been fully, finally dealt with. So the purpose of the second advent, at least for believers, is to save. Judgment for those who reject Christ, to be sure, but that's not the focus here. So the purpose of the second advent is to save. I don't know about you, but... I grew up in the church, and verse 27 was always kind of like lifted out of context and used in different contexts. You know, it's appointed to man to die once, and after that, face judgment. And I never heard the rest of the sentence, you know? Um, And it's true on its own, but do you see why it's there in verses 27 and 28? There's a correspondence. We die once, and then we face judgment. So Christ was offered and died once, and he dealt fully and finally with our sins so that we will not face judgment. And when he appears the second time, we'll be saved fully and finally. So just see what's going on there in context. But before we move on, let's pause for a moment at verse 27 and let it sink in because even though it's not the main point of these verses, it is a true and powerful point that I think we need to come to terms with. Just as it is appointed for man to die. Listen up, family. It is appointed for you. And I mean that like individually. It is appointed for you to die. You have an appointment With death. Each of us has an appointment with death. And you cannot reschedule or postpone this appointment. I think sometimes it starts to get a little closer and more real to us when someone close to us dies or when we have a scare. And most of the time, other than those times, we want to keep that reality as far away from our mind and heart as possible. But we need this to sink in so that we are living in light of reality. It is appointed for each of us to die. Listen to Psalm 139. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, every one of my days, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. James 4.13, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Only if the Lord wills will we live. You and I, we've got an appointment with death. God set it for you. It's appointed. It's appointed for you by someone else, God. And you cannot cancel or postpone it. And judgment follows death inevitably. There's no escaping this. Just want to make sure that we're really clear here. I would be unloving to not be really clear on these things. There is no post-mortem opportunity to change your mind and repent. You're not in control of your death, and then afterwards, there's not going to be a second chance. There are no second chances after death. There is no purgatory. I'll just say it bluntly. It is the invention of the Roman Catholic Church. It has no grounding in canonical scripture. So I'm saying all these things to say, have you come to terms with the fact that you have an appointment with death and judgment follows? And have you come to terms with the first coming of Christ? It is the only way to be freed from your fear of death. That's actually one of the reasons Jesus came, to free you from the fear of death. This is so sweet. Listen to, in fact, you could flip back there. Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2.14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He took on our flesh and blood. Why? So that through death, his death, on the cross, in our place, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. How sweet is that? Why would you refuse this Savior? Why would you not want to receive him? This is why he came, to free us from the fear of death. We are all subject to that fear, whether we acknowledge it or not. But when we receive him as our Savior, coming to terms with his first coming, coming to terms with our sin and our need for a Savior, you've got nothing left to fear. I mean, what's more fearful than final judgment? And if when Jesus returns, he's your advocate, he's been interceding for you all along, You have everything when you have Him. If He's your Savior who's dealt once for all, fully and decisively, and eternally with your sin, then He only returns to save you from this crumbling, passing away, broken world. No more need for atonement, already finished, once for all. His second advent is for saving, for the final rescue, for the final redemption, to deliver us all to the glory and joy that Tyler preached about so well last Sunday from Revelation 21, 1 to 8. I mean, if Tyler's message didn't put some eagerly waiting in you, then you need to go listen to it again. So I think oftentimes that doesn't square with our experience, eagerly waiting for the return of Christ. But do we really love this world? There's so much brokenness in this world. I was thinking, Beth and I were walking in the city of Chicago and just seeing the mental illness. I mean, it's just one thing. Tyler gave a list in his message of things that are not going to be in the new heavens and the new earth because Jesus is going to take care of it all. Like, mental illness just breaks my heart, and I feel so powerless to help these people that are just broken. Cancer, sadness, depression, futility, dashed hopes. I mean, we could just go on and on and on and on and on. This world is so broken. Don't settle down here. Why would we love this world and its fallenness? We need to live like Romans eight eighteen to 25, like Tyler read earlier. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us at the second coming of Christ. The, the creation is on its tiptoes, waiting. The creation is tired of heaving with earthquakes and hurricanes eager longing, the creation waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Because you know what? The creation wants to be the playground of the children of God forever in peace and, and just wholeness and harmony. And it's broken and heaving and twisted and polluted. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God to become our eternal playground. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's full adoption full redemption. We've already been adopted and redeemed, but it's not yet fully ours. Our bodies are still broken and they decay. We want resurrected bodies. We want all things made new. And so it's in this hope that we were saved, first coming, but that hope is not realized yet, so we wait for it with patience. So we should be eagerly waiting for our Savior to come and make all things new. And this leads to our third and final point, the profile of a Christian pilgrim. We are pilgrims. Christians are pilgrims. That's normal Christianity. Just listen to a couple verses. 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Or the cry of the psalmist in Psalm 39, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. For I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. We need grace to become normal. So what is this profile of a Christian pilgrim? Well, again, it's characterized by this kind of bifocal living. We we oscillate in a healthy way between a focus on the first coming and the second coming of Christ. So just a couple things, and you need to tease this out. We we will tease this out more in the series, and you can tease it out in your community groups as you meet and discuss how to live this out, but we live in light of the first advent. I mean, how does our once-for-all, better eternal redemption affect us now? It means, guess what? You're not on trial with God. Some of us live like we're on trial with God, like You've got the rose. He loves me. He loves me not. Or whatever flower it is. You know, daisy. I don't know. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. You know, I I haven't had a quiet time in two days. He must be really angry at me. What is this formula garbage? Like, no. Once for all, eternal redemption. If you're convicted, it's just because he wants to feed you more grace not so you can check more boxes off on your Bible reading program for crying out loud. It's a relationship with the eternal God of the universe that loved you so much that he came after you. So you're not on trial. It's once and done. That has huge implications. And I don't think we come to terms with that very easily. I think we have to keep believing that. It needs to just like soak down into our souls. You don't have to walk on eggshells with God. You know what it's like to walk on eggshells with somebody, another person, right? And I think sometimes we do that with God. Like, oh, I'm a step out of line. He's going to... No! Like, we live between the heavens. Why did He come in the first place? Everything about chapter 9 is saying, security, 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 eternal redemption once for all. He did it all. It's done. He sat down. Past, present, future sin, all paid for. You don't have to be paralyzed by regrets and shame and guilt for past sin. Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. We have an advocate. So you do that stupid thing. I can't believe I did it again. Well, Don't run away from God as if, again, he's going to zap me. He's so sick of me. Come to him for more grace. So listen to 1 John. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So do you see how a focus on the once for allness of the first coming of Christ has everything to do with how we face the now? Whether it's moral failure and guilt. Again, we don't do penance as Christians. We don't beat ourselves up. We mourn over our sin, but we don't beat ourselves up as if that's going to gain us something with God. It's once-for-all. It's done. How about if you have let yourself down? Is anybody, like, disappointed with who they've become? I'm not. I just feel like a failure. I'm nobody. I've wasted this much time or whatever. I mean, you can play that narrative out how many different ways. How many ambitions have just been blown up and, and they're just kind of, like, laying in the carpet and you just feel like, I'm just no. You're not nobody. <laughs> the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature, <laughs> traversed an infinite space and took on flesh and blood and lived and died for you so that you could be exalted as a son or I mean like that's what the first advent is all about for you. You're not a nobody. You're an honored, treasured, beloved son or daughter, and everything's paid for. Jesus says, there with me, you know, advocate. I mean, we could just go on and on. Whatever the issue is right now, I'll have to stop there, but that's good stuff to talk about with your community group. Brothers and sisters, second advent. Profile of a Christian pilgrim. How do we live in light of the second advent? Eagerly awaiting. Do you resonate with that? This is really, really serious. This is normal Christianity. I'm just, I want us to believe this. Listen to how Paul talks in 2 Timothy 4. He says, the time of my departure has come. It's the last letter that he wrote. He's about to die. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. But it's not because he's an apostle and he's like some super Christian. This is for, he says, not only me, but also to all who have loved his appearing or longed for his appearing. And then he goes on and says to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon because Demas in love with this present world has deserted me. So the crown for all who love his appearing, Demas, I thought he was the real thing, but he actually proved to be one who loved this world and he deserted me. So normal Christianity is loving, longing for the appearing, of Christ. Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't resonate with that, and I remember, it's too long of a story for now, but I remember just being so overwhelmed with how abnormal I was, and it was like a quest for years, and I'm still not there, but like longing to be normal like this to me, to live as Christ, to die as gain, like eagerly awaiting If you don't resonate with this, we should take stock, do some business. You might need to do some serious business with God this morning. Listen, the only people who are saved like from their sins initially are those who know they need to be saved, who feel their need. And Jesus is their Savior, and they are saved by grace, through faith in Jesus. Similarly, the only people who are saved by Jesus at the end he uses the language of salvation here. Saved, rescued, delivered. Are those who want Jesus to return to get them. Those who are eagerly waiting. You've got to feel your need to be saved. This isn't home. This world is not our life. Christ is our life. So if to you to live is this life and to die is loss, then maybe, maybe you love this world and not God. And it's God's kindness to show you that this morning so you can repent and trust in Jesus that he would be your treasure. I mean, what if you knew someone, a good friend, who is engaged to be married and they were not looking forward to the wedding day? You would want to intervene. There's something wrong with that picture. Well, Jesus is like an eternal husband, and he's coming back to get us. And if we're not looking forward to the wedding day, there's something wrong. Listen to John Piper. This eager expectation for Christ is simply a sign that we love him and believe in him authentically. There is a phony faith that once only escaped from hell but has no desire for Christ. That does not save And it does not produce an eager expectation for Christ to come. It would rather that Christ not come for as long as possible so that it can have as much of this world as possible. But the faith that really holds on to Christ as treasure and hope and joy is the faith that makes us long for Christ to come. And that is the faith that saves. So I urge you, turn from the world and from sin into Christ. Take him not just as your fire insurance policy, but as your eagerly awaited bridegroom and friend and lord. Remember James 4? Do you not know that friendship with the world, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? He's jealous for our hearts, for our affections, that they would be all his, that we would be faithful. And he gives grace to those who humbly recognize that their heart is divided. He gives grace. That's why we're here this morning, because we need grace to be normal Christians. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud who have a divided heart, but gives grace to the humble. So submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So profile of a Christian pilgrim, looking back on the first advent in faith, with this deep and growing gratitude for the once-for-all sacrifice of our Savior in our place for our sins. We can never focus too much on the first coming of Christ. And then focusing on the second advent, looking forward to the second advent in faith with eager and growing anticipation for the day when all of our hopes will be fulfilled and all things will be made new. Listen to Jonathan Edwards. I'll close with this in the christian pilgrim and the musicians can come up we're going to sing an appropriate song here to close he has this great little article called the christian pilgrim and i'll put a link to it on the blog or something cuz it is a few pages of gold here's what he says heaven is that place alone where our highest good and highest i'm sorry highest end and highest good is to be obtained god has made us for himself therefore We attain our highest end when we are brought to God. God is the highest good of the reasonable creature, and the enjoyment of him is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. Good shadows, but shadows but God is the substance. These are but scattered beings, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. Therefore, it becomes us to spend this life only as a journey towards heaven as it becomes us to make the seeking of our highest end and proper good the whole work of our lives. Why should we labor for or set our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end and true happiness? So if our heart is with God, like where your treasure is, there your heart will be ours also. If our heart is with God, then we're going to sing this song and it's going to resonate. If it's not resonating, you can sing it as a prayer that it would be true. We are like people out of the promised land. We are out of Egypt. We've been delivered. We're in the wilderness and we can't wait to get home to Canaan. We're bound for the promised land. So we're on Jordan's stormy banks There's a lot of storms and and pain and brokenness in the wilderness between redemption out of Egypt and home in Canaan, but we're bound, we're headed. So we're a company of pilgrims singing together as we go and we can't wait to get home. Let's pray. Lord, please own our hearts and make us normal Christian pilgrims. In Jesus' name, amen.